0: Quite typical today when you ask someone to describe their worship experience or in some cases to even define for you what they're seeking in worship, the response is often something related to their environment, the mood, the atmosphere, the music in some cases or maybe the way all of that stuff makes them feel some sort of state of mind, some sense of elation or exhilaration or euphoria even that they're seeking after in the experience of worship. Or for some people, it's just the folks around them. And they describe and speak about their worship in terms of the community and what they experience in the love and the, and the, and the bonds that they have with those who sit next to them in the chairs or the pews or whatever it might be. All of those things are the way that people think about their worship, the way that people define their worship, the way that people evaluate their worship when they are certainly thinking or seeking to understand better. Well, this morning we come to a passage of Scripture that sets before us a very different criteria, a very shocking criteria probably for some. It comes to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and the second half of that chapter, verses 26 through 40, which is our our focus this morning. It's the final section, it's Paul's final word on the issue of spiritual gifts. He had started to address it back in chapter 12, gone into chapter 13, now into chapter 14, and he has really address this issue in a very dedicated way, the issue of spiritual gifts and overall the issue of our worship together and our existence together as the body of Christ. And really what it comes down to in these final verses is Paul focusing all of the application of everything he said so far in these final 15 verses, summarizing what is particularly pleasing to God and what is proper in worship, with special emphasis on the issue of tongues and prophecy. The driving considerations that Paul will outline for us here are, first of all, the very familiar criteria that everything be done for the building up of others. That's been everything he said to us, really, for much of these few chapters, that everything has to be done for edification. That's why God gives spiritual gifts. But then secondly, and ultimately, Paul wants us to understand that when it comes to our worship, everything we do must be done in a way that properly reflects God's character. And really, that is, that is the defining element of our worship. That is the, 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 the weighted criteria that we ought to use in measuring our worship. It is God's character, which obviously involves holiness and truthfulness and wisdom and transcendence and faithfulness and goodness, compassion and love. All of those things that we think of when we think of God's character. But the attribute that Paul particularly focuses on in this section of this chapter, this final word on spiritual gifts, the one that he wants you and I, uh, he urges you and I to reflect in our worship, is God's orderliness. We might say God's peacefulness. Or in some cases, you could say God's unity, His cohesion. And you see it reflected here in a number of places. Beginning in verse 26, Paul says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. That is, everything you do in worship, everything you do with your spiritual gifts ought to reflect this this aspect of building up others ought to reflect, we would say, God's love, God's concern, God's compassion for others. But more specifically, down in verse 33, he tells us that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. In other words, his, his statement here, his teaching, his word on our worship is essentially this, that our worship ought to reflect a sort of consistency, a coherence, a unity, and an orderliness, a peacefulness, because that is who God is. And that is really what our worship is supposed to be all about. It's supposed to be about reflecting God's character in everything we do. And then Paul caps it all off in the final verse, verse forty. When he writes, but all things should be done decently and in order. Again, emphasizing the need to reflect the character of God in all things we do. Particularly the harmony and peace and order and cohesive wisdom of God. Now, quite frankly, that... That view of worship flies in the face of so many, maybe the majority of evangelicalism today. This view that, that, that somehow order and structure and procedure and rules in worship are somehow an enhancement. Somehow, uh, uh, a vehicle through which we encounter God. Because if you were to listen to the average description, the average exposition, you might say, on what worship really is... What you're going to hear is that somehow all of that order and structure and planning are opposed to the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, these, they would say, are the hindrances that the Spirit must overcome in order for us to worship Him. That somehow the goal in your worship is to free yourself from the shackles of procedure if you really want worship that honors God. The prevailing winds in contemporary worship are really that you must be uninhibited by stuffy structure, open to spontaneity and all of the impulses of the Spirit, and that it is in that spontaneity that the Holy Spirit is most active, and that somehow we best connect with God when we are most freed from order and rules and procedures. But Paul's presenting to us a very different view, because quite honestly, he had a different view of God. He had a view of a God who wasn't somehow himself shackled by structure, that God himself wasn't in some way limited by our planning, or limited by our procedures, or limited by our order, that somehow if we follow in that course, that some way God is not able to work through all of that. Like the person who asked me, you know, look, pastor, do you ever study all week and then find that you get there on Sunday morning and then the Holy Spirit just gives you a message and that you have to preach? Like, no, because he gave me a message throughout the week. Why would I set aside His message that He worked in my life through all of the study and the labor and the prayer and the anxiety and the thinking? Why would, I, why would I set aside that work of the Holy Spirit as if somehow it's less legitimate, less genuine, less authentic because it involves structure and order and planning and sequence? But that's the prevailing view. Paul tells us, in fact, that worship shouldn't be chaotic. It shouldn't be unstructured. It shouldn't be necessarily spontaneous. As a matter of fact, everything he's saying to us in this chapter, everything he's saying to us, I should say, at the end of this chapter, is urging us towards order. It's urging us towards harmony and towards peace. Because That is, in fact, who God is. God models structure. God models cohesiveness. God models efficiency. God models those things which work together so that when we plan to accomplish that, we are planning to best best reflect God. He models order and when we follow order in our worship and we're not talking about mindless Routines, and we're not talking about formulas that allow us to harbor hardened hearts behind ritual, but we're talking about sincerely planned worship that is all done with a heart to honoring God. When we offer up that kind of worship, we are in fact offering the highest worship because we are mirroring God's character. Now, Paul's writing all this to a church that had a very different idea of worship. This, in other words, was all written as a corrective, as a rebuke for what was apparently a very chaotic worship scene in the Corinthian church. You remember back at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul started this whole section by telling them or mentioning to them that that no one, would ever stand up and speak by the Spirit of God and declare that Jesus is accursed. That's what he said in chapter 12, verse 3. And that apparently had taken place. And there was apparently confusion in their minds about whether or not this was even legitimately a work of the Spirit because their worship services were so plagued by confusion and disorder and chaos that they no longer knew or had the criteria to even understand when the Spirit was working. And as we'll see as we move through this section of 1 Corinthians 14, these final 15 verses, Paul returns to really address what is this chaos and this disorder where you have people coming together with multiple voices, shouting seemingly above one another, all vying for the center of attention. Paul writes it understanding that is the context of these believers, but also understanding that he's writing to a hostile crowd that these are people who are predisposed, many of them, to resist his instruction. He had started the book, remember, talking about how there were factions in the church and many of the factions set against him. He mentions along the way that they, many of them, had labeled him a fool. They talked about the illegitimacy of his apostleship and how he wasn't even deserving of the title. And so as he approaches this issue, he knows not only the, the worship scene that they experience on a regular basis, but he understands that he's writing to a hostile crowd. He's writing to a church that was so enamored with their own spiritual superiority, they were so enamored with their own spiritual gifts, and particularly with the gift of tongues, that they were willing to tolerate someone standing up and cursing Jesus in the name of the Holy Spirit. And he understood that if they were willing to tolerate an attack on the character of Christ, they would have very little hesitation to resist his own counsel. Paul understood all this. And as a matter of fact, he addresses it head on in verse 36. He has to say to them, was it from you that the word of God first came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this. He's not to be recognized. Paul probably knew that they would hear his teaching, that they would claim to be spiritual, that in many cases in the name of the Holy Spirit, they would say that they're rejecting his instruction. They would would probably accuse Paul of trying to restrict the Holy Spirit if in any way, he tries to restrict their use of their gifts. And so Paul has to couch his words carefully, even though he gives them clearly and with a, with a, a, a plea for them to understand his spiritual authority. Everything he says in this chapter is to somehow plead with them and bring some sense of order out of the chaos of their worship. Now, he says all this, you remember, right on the heels of telling them that particularly the gift of tongues is not intended for believers. You remember he says that in verses 20 through 23? Tongues wasn't given for believers. It wasn't given for the church. And he even says it wasn't even given as an evangelistic tool for the lost. In fact, he says, you want to have a mature understanding of what tongues is about? This is what it's about. It's about judgment, a sign of judgment against the hardened hearts of Israel. And he quotes even out of Isaiah to prove that. That, Paul says, is the mature understanding of tongues. That should have been enough to settle the issue for them. But because they are so immature, as he says back in chapter 3, they are still children and Infants, and because they were not willing to accept doctrinal meat, Paul understands that he would need to gently nurse them along by way of spiritual milk. And so he writes this section, I believe, as a concession. He knows that they will not give up their pursuit of tongues. He knows that they will not accept a mature understanding of its purpose. And so he now seeks to at least regulate what they're doing with tongues in worship. He knows that it wasn't meant for the church. He knows that it wasn't meant for believers. He says that he himself would never speak tongues in the church. But if they're going to insist... On pursuing it, he wants to at least give some strict limitations and restrictions on its practice. And that's what most of this section is about. It is a section outlining the guidelines for the gifts of tongues and prophecy. Guidelines and restrictions, we would say, on the proper use of tongues and prophecy. Let me begin just by reading the whole passage in its entirety for us, beginning in verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I'm writing to you are a commandment of the Lord." If anyone doesn't recognize this, he's not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Paul's dealing here with a number of issues, a number of restrictions, trying to bring their worship back in order, trying to bring it back to the point where it is edifying to one another and honoring to the Lord in some way. And to that end, he mandates restrictions in four areas, restrictions regarding tongues, restrictions regarding prophecy, restrictions regarding women, and restrictions regarding authority, four Areas of restriction that he outlines for us, beginning, first of all, with the restrictions related to tongues. Paul says that when the believers came to the church, verse 26, they came with some sort of predetermination to say something. One of you, he says, when you come, you come together. Each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. And then he adds, let all things be done for building up, which apparently was not their focus. Paul presents this picture of them, apparently, everyone showing up, wanting a piece of the action, not really caring uh, caring about other people, not really caring uh, caring about their needs but really focused on personal exaltation, personal spotlight. Some of them, he says, would come with hymns, which obviously refers to some sort of musical piece. And we know from Ephesians 5 and from Colossians 3 that the church used hymns in a, in a way to exhort one another. And so perhaps they're coming with some sort of word of exhortation that they wanted to sing. Or maybe they saw themselves in the, in the light of Miriam or Moses from the Old Testament, who, who even sang prophetically before the nation of Israel. So maybe they even had some idea of supernatural prophetic work through their hymn. Some, he said, simply came with a lesson. Some came with a revelation, which probably refers to those who consider themselves prophets. Some of them came with a tongue. Some of them came with interpretation. But Paul points out that whatever they came with, whatever they were preparing, and however they were preparing to deliver it, the goal must always be oriented towards others. And we assume the reason Paul brings all of this up is that that wasn't the goal. And really what you had at Corinth was a spirit of rivalry, a spirit of competition, everyone vying for the spotlight. And not only that, they're coming together and all seeking to vocalize their contribution at the same time. And the reason we assume that is because of the way Paul moves to address specifically the issue of tongues, because in verses 20, verse 27 and 28, he basically outlines four restrictions or four guidelines that if they're going to insist on the use of the gift of tongues would at least ensure that somehow it's profitable to the people around them. Again, he knows that tongues were not meant for believers, but for unbelievers. But if they're going to insist on it anyway, he says you need to do at least these four things. First of all, he says they needed to limit uh, the number of speakers of tongues. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three. Paul obviously uh, prefers to have fewer. He would prefer there not to be any more than two, but certainly not more than three. If there were more than three, Paul is simply telling them to constrain themselves, to be content to withdraw whatever they were considering to speak in a tongue. Now, obviously, whenever you understand what he's saying there, one thing becomes very clear that Paul whatever he thought of tongues he clearly looked at it as something that could be controlled right I mean he obviously had the the idea that whatever is going on whenever someone is speaking in a tongue that they are not somehow being overcome or overwhelmed by some force or or they are not to put it in the modern vernacular they're not in any way slain by the spirit or 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 somehow uh, taken over with some Urge to speak, which they cannot resist. He understands that anyone being led by the Spirit to speak in tongues would have full control over when they speak or when they didn't speak. And it only makes sense that if this is a work of the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit is controlling you. That the Spirit would work in conjunction with all of His fruits, one of which is self-control, right? I mean, that is a fruit of the Spirit as well. That's a work of the Spirit as much as tongues. And so, so Paul clearly understands that anyone speaking in tongues would be able to restrain themselves if necessary. We can't be certain of the way the Corinthians understood the gift, but based on his restrictions here... That probably, we probably should understand, there wasn't a lot of restraint going on. Paul wouldn't have to say this if there was. In fact, the whole opening discussion about spiritual gifts, you remember in chapter 12, verse 2, he had to remind them. You know that when you were pagans, you were led away by mute idols, however you were led. And he's reminding them that in the days of their pagan, idolatrous worship, that they would allow themselves to be swept up and swept away into a sort of involuntary frenzy in the name of spirituality. So much so, he says, that then someone stands up and claiming to speak by the Spirit of God, says that Jesus was accursed. And their understanding of this involuntary movement of the Spirit upon someone was so esteemed that they would actually accept such a perversion as long as they claimed it was the Spirit moving upon them. This was a view that Paul says is more in line with your pagan backgrounds but it has nothing to do with the Spirit of God. Corinthians, or the city of Corinth, was actually one of the places of concentration for what is sometimes called the, the ancient mystery cults. And we've mentioned a number of times the Bacchus and Dionysian cults particularly, the Sibylline cults. And perhaps nothing was more characteristic of these mystery religions than the concept of Ecstasia, ecstasy. Now, that, that is the the sensation of communion with the divine which is cultivated in a magical and we would say even a senseless or mindless way. Where these followers would work themselves into some sort of hallucination, some sort of semi-consciousness, some sort of hypnotic state where they believe that they rose above The material and mundane things of this world, which they looked at as somehow a barrier between them and God. Some sort of shackle in the material world, keeping them from the divine. Samuel Angus, a former professor, late professor of New Testament, St. Andrew's College in Sydney, writes, quote, ecstasy might be induced by vigil and fasting. Intense religious expect- expectancy, whirling dances, physical stimuli, the contemplation of sacred objects, the effect of stirring music, inhalation of fumes, hallucination, psychological suggestion. End quote. Yeah, ancients would actually use the image of a flute. As if they, that is all they were. And when the divine breathed into them. They had no way of resisting the sound. They were just a hollow instrument. And these mystery worshippers sought after this experience of euphoria that raised them above into this abnormal level of consciousness where they believed that somehow they entered a spiritual plane where they could see and understand things which only the Spirit could understand. It's no doubt, even by Paul's hints back in chapter 12, that more than any sound doctrine... This was the defining view of the Corinthian church when it came to the spiritual. I remember when I was in China, constantly battling within the church these divergent or syncretistic ideas. Where so many people in that culture had dabbled or plunged, in some cases, deep into Eastern religions and most particularly Qi gong, or as sometimes it is expressed here in the West, Tai Chi. And the whole idea of Tai Chi or Qi Gong is that there is a spiritual or immaterial force known as Qi. And Qi Gong, what Qi Gong attempts to do is to manipulate or push or project that Qi, that force on different objects and situations. There are all kinds of meditations which are all about pushing the qi to various areas of your body and even claims of miraculous healing if you're able to do this. As a matter of fact, there were well-known Tai Chi or Qigong Gong healers who would have crusades. When I was in China, they would Uh, rent out a hall and they would have a a, a Tai Chi guru or leader stand up on the stage and he would call people up on the stage in their wheelchairs and he would project his chi onto them and they would leap out of their wheelchairs miraculously healed. Or or friends would tell me how these Qigong leaders would levitate themselves in front of the entire uh, congregation and the spectacles that they put on by the power of their chi. And so it's not surprising that when these believers came into the church, when they came to know Christ, they came in and this became their understanding of the Holy Spirit. And they would, they would view the Holy Spirit through the paradigm or the prism of their former Eastern religions, and they looked at the, the exercises of Tai Chi or Qigong Gong as ways for them to tap into the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul's probably suggesting the same sort of thing, that this is, this is what was going on in Corinth, that they were doing little more than imbibing their old pagan view where somehow they were just carried away or swept up in some euphoria, some sense of emotion and carried along in some sort of ecstasy all in the name of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I was reading this week in one publication of Qigong in my own experience uh, that the writer of the publication says this, you've seen people, a quote, you've seen people on television who could heal others with a touch or people who could pass healing energy to others. Finally, you can learn to make use of all this healing energy that many say results in modern day miracles, end quote. Another place, experience of a sense of mystical contact with God. Another place, eliminate pain by simply willing it away. In another place, experience sudden shivers of ecstasy that are without apparent stimulation. Another place, experience profound joy during routine tasks and in the midst of pain and discomfort. And you can see how someone who has That worldview would want to import all of that into Christianity because they assume that that is what the Holy Spirit is all about. These Corinthians were just assuming so much out of their own background that Paul is now trying to correct. That he's trying to reorient them to a proper view of the Holy Spirit, a proper view of God. And therefore, a proper view of worship. To that end, Paul says, look. You're going to have to understand. That whatever you're experiencing, when someone stands up and says, Jesus is a curse, that's not of God. That's not the working of God. They should have realized it. They should have realized it. But apparently. Apparently. Their worship services were so disorderly, so out of control, that there was nothing, as James says, but confusion and sensual attitudes and disorder and every evil thing. So that sort of involuntary frenzy had given way, particularly in the gift of tongues, And Paul now wants to correct that. He wants them to put a restriction upon it. He wants them to understand that the gift of tongues works in conjunction with self-control, which is also a work of the Spirit. And so we gather from his mandate here in verse 27 that the person with the gift of tongues has the ability to sit and to wait and even to withhold what they wanted to say if someone else is speaking or if two or three others have already spoken. That leads us, by the way, to the second mandate that he gives. Not only should they limit the number of speakers, but they couldn't all speak simultaneously. As we've been said, this been saying this probably directly confronts what was going on. They were all showing up, looking to exalt themselves, all looking to shout out at the same time, all looking to get the spotlight. And so as the worship service began, they would all be speaking and shouting and chaos and disorder. And so Paul tells them, look, there must be not only two or at the most three, but each one of them has to speak in turn, not all at the same time, not all shouting over one another, not all trying to to uh, outdo one another. That this must be reflective of, uh, of a sequence and an order. Even in your speaking by the Spirit. You can't all be trying to speak simultaneously. Thirdly, he says not only did you need to limit the number of speakers. Not only do they not need to be simultaneously. But he says you can only speak in tongues if you know that there is someone to interpret. That's what he says, really, at the end of verse 27. When this is all followed through, he says, let someone interpret. All that really just briefly restates the whole point of chapter 14, that tongues is an unfruitful exercise to everyone around you. And he says even back in verse 14, even to yourself. It is an unfruitful exercise to everyone around you and even to yourself if no one understands what you're saying. And so if there's no interpretation, it only stands to reason that it's pointless to speak in tongues. There is no benefit. There is no value. No one is in any way enhanced, even your own mind, is unfruitful. Finally, Paul says, if there's no interpreter, the final restriction is, then you have to remain silent. Verse 28, if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. They would have no doubt known who the interpreters were, much like they knew who the teachers were, much like they probably knew who the prophets were. They they would have known those who claimed to have the gift of interpretation. They would have known, first of all, if they were absent. Or secondly, they were to confirm that the person with the gift of interpretation was able and uh, thirdly, willing to interpret their tongue. And if it didn't meet any of those criteria, Paul says they were to keep silent. They were not to seek to present their tongue. Paul doesn't suggest then that the tongue speaker even interpret the tongue himself because he probably assumes that they couldn't. In fact, back in verse 13, remember, he says the speaker of tongues ought to pray that he could interpret because apparently in most cases he couldn't. So even when Paul says in verse 28 that the tongue speaker is to remain silent and to speak to himself and to God, he knows that the tongue speaker cannot even speak to himself. Because if he could, he would understand what he's saying, and if he could understand what he was saying, he could interpret it, and if he could interpret it, he would speak it to everybody. So we understand that when Paul says this, that the speaker is to speak to himself and to God, this isn't some sort of cryptic reference to a private prayer language. This is just another way of saying, don't speak to anyone else. Keep it to yourself. It's unintelligible, it's unfruitful, it's unedifying, and therefore it's unnecessary. It's completely unbeneficial. That's been the whole point of 1 Corinthians 14. And so since God is the God of order, not a God of chaos, all of this is probably even an indication that whatever this person thought was a tongue isn't really even a tongue from God. Because it certainly wouldn't make sense For God, the Holy Spirit, to prompt someone with an unintelligible tongue and then not even send anyone to interpret it. That is chaotic. That is disorderly. That is pointless. And it doesn't reflect who God is. So the tongue speaker probably should recognize that whatever they thought was a tongue obviously wasn't. It obviously wasn't. There are so many people who, when they think about order, when they think about rules, when they think about restrictions, they immediately think, this this is the problem. In fact, many people may approach you and tell you that one of the reasons why you do not experience tongues or you do not experience prophecy is because perhaps you are too tied to your traditional ways of worship. In other words, you're too tied to the order and the structure of your worship. Or what they will often tell you is what you really need to do is you need to open yourself up, by which they mean that you need to be open to spontaneity. You need to be open to the unexpected. And it's only by such opening that you'll ever have any hope of experiencing the Holy Spirit. Well, if I understand what Paul's saying here, he's telling us if we have any hope of experiencing the Holy Spirit, the only way we'll do it is by procedure, by order, By structure. Because this is the way the Spirit truly works. Because this is what truly reflects God. Also no conflict between rules and the working of the Spirit. Because He knew His God. And He knew that His God was not a God of chaos. He knew the majesty of His character. And He knew that our worship needs to reflect that in every way. That would be true of the tongue speaker, just as is true of everything we do in worship. It all needs to be done with arrangement, with organization, because that reflects the God we worship. Well, there's three other restrictions we'll cover next week, restrictions on prophecy, restrictions on women, and restrictions on authority. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, again, we bow to thank you for today and thank you for this word. Clearing up confusion, which prevails so often in so many churches and in some cases, even in our own minds. We have been urged. To think of you and to think of the Holy Spirit as one who works in chaos. One who works only in spontaneity. But Father, we know our God. We see the beauty and the majesty. The orderliness and cohesiveness and unity. And all that is built into. The comprehensive picture of your nature. Lord, we know then that you work so often. Through all of the little details of our planning, through all the little efforts that we offer up to you, not only in planning a worship service, but in the way in which we order our home in harmony, in our marriage in harmony, and our work in harmony, and our labors, all with order and structure. Lord, let us be those who reflect you, not only in the way we worship, but in every act. May they all be offered up as reflections of your character, as divine offerings, as genuine worship in all of life, given to our God, peace, pray in Christ's name.